Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There is a lot of pessimism around Tesla these days, so much so that Elon Musk decided to joke about the fact that the company was filing for bankruptcy as an April Fool's joke. Uh, Here to talk about the bull case for Tesla is Philippe Houchois, equity analyst at Jefferies, coming to us from London. Uh, Philippe, there is so much negativity around Tesla right now as people ratchet down their production estimates. Uh, I'm wondering, what's the bull case here? Good morning. I'll, I'll qualify your comment. Though. Um, we, we upgrade from underperform to hold today. Um, talking about the bull case is probably a bit premature. Um, although we have some some admiration and sympathy for what Tesla has achieved so far, um, our view is mostly that a lot of the bad news have been crystallized in the share price last week and apparently today as well. And we think at this stage, um, the probability of management getting a bit more serious about capital structure funding and guidance is likely to um, to stabilize the share price. Well, just to, just to push back a little bit, I think that a lot of people are watching the bonds right now and watching the prices sink, basically locking Tesla out of the unsecured bond market. A mm-hmm. lot of people believe that Tesla will have to raise equity. And I'm just wondering, you know, if they can't raise $4 billion by the first quarter next year, uh, their debt could easily come under more pressure. At what point, you know, does this become a spiral? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we factored in a 2.5 to 3 billion capital raise for some time um, with a view that there might be a mix of equity and debt at this stage. It seems like it could be higher than what we have in our estimates and also very much you no know, weighted or skewed towards the equity. So the, um, the dilution impact, of course, is more severe and uh, raising capital in those circumstances with what's happening on the bond side isn't easy. At the same time, what we've seen before is if you raise capital in a what we call a professional manner, that you reassure investors that you have sufficient funding, you have a plan, um, then you de-risk the, the, the profile, investment profile of the company. And I think that's possibly an opportunity available to Tesla today. So we need to um, be aware of the risk of more capital needed to be raised. At the same time, the benefit of stabilizing the equity story in the balance sheet is not to be, uh, to be neglected either. At, at what point do you believe investors will step back and lenders will not want to lend the company any more money? Is there a specific challenge that Tesla has, and is there a time frame? Well, as we said before, you know, a lot of the issues around Tesla are self-inflicted. Um, I think the market will probably welcome a slight pause in this aggressive guidance, uh, better visibility on how reasonably production will be ramped up. So it's a combination of how the company is willing to package the message, um, you know, rebuild credibility on what can be achieved and what is too optimistic, and of course, the amount involved. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a difficult balance, um, but I think now is the right, now is the right time to do it, um, because what seemed like it might have been a short-term issue, it's been a short-term issue for three quarters now, so it no longer qualifies, and they need to do something a bit more um, drastic, I think, to, uh, to stabilize the equity story and funding. You know, Felipe, one thing that I'm struggling to get my mind around is what is the main problem 
that, cha- that that Tesla faces right now? Is it is it a financing problem? Is it the fact that they have overpromised and underdelivered uh, quarter after quarter with the Model Three delivery expected to also underwhelm people, or is it a management issue? And what we saw with Elon Musk and the April Fool's tweet that didn't go over very well. I think at this stage, the main issue is probably um, the industrial approach. Now, they have chosen a manufacturing process that is highly automated. Um, it is well known that in manufacturing, there is a trade-off between automation and, and, and flexibility. And so that's one of, one of the issues. And if you're not running at full capacity, then your, 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 your running costs are very, very high. And then there's another question mark, but it's very much a question mark, is whether some of the Product development has lacked in validation, in which case you know, some of the components may not be uh, totally validated, and that might have be some of the, 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 the reasons behind continuing issues of fit and finish that some consumers have reported. Um, so there's uncertainty there, but certainly it seems like it's very much a, a, the consequence of excessively aggressive manufacturing decisions made by the current management. Yeah, but Felipe, it's not even just the current management. A recent review by Car and Driver magazine about the Tesla Model 3 said, quote, it's difficult to gauge exactly how disappointing the Model 3's result is in that real-world 75-mile-per-hour highway fuel economy test. Indeed, they say that if it's a little cold outside, lop off about a third of the range. If it gets even colder, the range will be even worse. That's not a management issue. That's a technical issue. That is a, a product concept issue, and it's something that you know, has, been, is, has been part of the development of electric cars. And there seems to be maybe a perception among investors or customers that there can be a, a seamless transition away from combustion engine cars into electric cars. And the reality is still very much a technology that is under development, under development um, with you no know, disappointments along the way, as well as exciting you no know, developments in terms of you no know, driving uh, agreement. And uh, so I think it's, it's, I think there has been a lot of different opinions, some negative in some sources, more positive. I think it's very much a product that is evolving, and that may be a surprise for for, for investors. Do you uh, do you drive a Tesla? I do not. Ah, okay. All right. Just checking. Thanks very much. Uh, Philippe uh, Houchois, he is equity analyst for Jefferies, joining us from London, talking about Tesla and the company's future. Right now, the company's stock is down nearly 7%. Shares of Tesla lower by more than $18 a share. Well, China retaliated against the U.S. uh, with $3 billion worth of goods from the U.S. getting slapped with tariffs. We're talking pork. We're talking other uh, perhaps ginseng, uh, things that are pretty peripheral uh, in, in size and in scope. So, you know, the question is... Are markets missing the real show with the China-U.S. standoff? And is it more severe than perhaps some people are counting on? With us, I am so pleased to bring in Bill Rhodes, president and chief executive of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, better known as banker to the world with his decades of experience at the front seat of international banking negotiations. Bill, thank you so much for being here. Uh, So what do you make of the tit-for-tat U.S.-China tariffs. Well, first of all, it's great to be uh, here with you, Lisa, and uh, with Pim, as always. Uh, I think no one should be surprised at this because uh, President Trump ran uh, on doing something uh, with China. The question is, are we doing it intelligently or are we not? Because we have to remember that Xi Jinping is now basically emperor of China. And on this program, 
number of months ago, I predicted that he would be able to consolidate his power as core leader. And now, basically, uh, he is the leader almost for life, depending on how long he wants to stay around. So we're dealing with a different situation than we would have been uh, a year ago. And we also need uh, China if we're going to have a successful negotiation with North Korea and Kim Jong-un. And that was brought, I think, home to everyone with the visit of Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un to Beijing. Uh, so uh, whether we like it or not, we can't just talk about trade with China. We also have to be very cognizant that without China's support, where 90% of their petroleum and, uh, and energy comes from China, uh, we won't have a happy outcome in, in that negotiation. So at the end of the day, we're going to have to sit down with the Chinese and work things out. Uh, yeah. One of the major aspects also that I think uh, needs to be uh, worked on has been talked about, but I haven't seen much done about is the intellectual property area, because there's no doubt China has been very deficient in this area for quite some time, uh, not only with American companies, but also with European companies. Well, but but I guess that, that then I'm wondering, as I listen to you, so far markets are taking the tariff talk as more bark, more bark than bite. Do you think that they're overly sanguine based on the sort of larger picture issues that the U.S. and China are dealing with? Well, I think that you have to take uh, these discussions on trade seriously because, uh, you know, we've been looking, particularly in the high-tech area, we've been looking at China as the market uh, of the future. Uh, you know, whether it be Apple, Qualcomm, I could just run through the names, Facebook, etc. And uh, what the Chinese uh, are doing, and let's fi- let's not forget where Alibaba's come in 10 years, in Tencent. I mean, nobody heard of Alibaba 10 years ago. So there, there's a lot at stake here. The Qualcomm situation in particular, they've held up this, uh, uh, this merger, uh, you know, approval uh, for Qualcomm, which is key for them now that the Broadcom deal has fallen apart. And their attitude is, well, we want to take more time to look at it, which is uh, basically saying, uh, if we can work some other deals on some other things, we'll approve it. So we've got a lot at stake here. Uh, and instead of having a talk uh, with Mr. Putin, I think maybe our president ought to be sitting down with Xi Jinping uh, on all of these issues, because I think that's much more important for the United States than sitting down with Putin uh, at this stage of the game. Although I'm sure Mr. Putin is very happy that uh, that the president called him and said, let's talk. Uh, I think our major concern should be China in all of these areas. Bill Rhodes, in January, uh, you penned an op-ed piece, and uh, you've put your pen to paper many times, uh, the book Banker to the World. What did you say in that op-ed piece, and maybe you could just reiterate it for people? Uh, Thank you for uh, mentioning that, Pim. I basically predicted... Uh, that we would have uh, a correction of 10 to 20%. I guess the low point was 12, and we'd have a lot of volatility, which certainly is happening, <clears throat> because there are so many uncertainties, including the ones that Lisa and I had just been talking about. And I think also one of the, th- the things that a lot of people have not taken seriously is we've had so much liquidity pumped in the markets by the major central banks of the world, uh, and uh, we've had this tremendous reach and search for yield. And eventually, that's, come, that's going to come home and bite you and uh, because people think it'll go on forever. And, of course, the Fed's taking the lead and ratcheting back with their balance sheet. Uh, it's not just raising interest rates, which everyone seems to you know, think is a major preoccupation. 
for the future, which is important, but I got to tell you, it may be just as important and more important is we're reducing that balance sheet, the quantitative easing. And as that money gets taken out, interest rates go up. And I think you'll start to see movement in the ECB, the Bank, Bank of England also. So stocks, stocks are down 2% this year, okay, by the S&P 500. You think they have another 8% at least to go? No, what I was saying is at the time I penned this, which is the 18th of January, uh, when the hit came three months later, it dropped to be exact 11.5%. So I was just calling for that correction. But I'm just saying the same points that are there, I think are going to come back to bite us later on in the year. Uh, and I think at, at the very you know worst, we, we might have a total adjustment of some 20%. Uh, but at least the 10%, we've already seen that correction. But I think we have further corrections to come. Which uh, sector of U.S. equities, or just in general, which asset class do you think will be hardest hit? I think the tech side is the most vulnerable, frankly. Even now, even with the sell-off that we've seen recently. Yeah, I think so. And then the other thing which has surprised people uh, is everyone expected the bank stocks to be soaring. And they haven't. And this, is, uh, this has been a big surprise to uh, a lot of uh, fund managers. And some of these fund managers aren't doing too well, as you've seen uh, by some of the announcements over the last couple of days. Uh, this market is one that is going to be a rough ride uh, with high volatility and uh, the possibility that uh, you can get uh, some more major adjustments before you have flattening out. And then you have the whole point, is, is the Fed going to raise three or four times? Uh, there's no doubt that unemployment is going to drop below 4%. And notwithstanding uh, what I think is not going to be as strong a first quarter as people thought, uh, I, I still think you have to take a look at uh, growth may not be uh, as high as people, uh, as people think. And so you have a lot of, a lot of these things floating around. Uh, can, I, can you do 30 seconds on Mexico? The election uh, mm -hmm. began officially uh, yesterday. Well, I, I think that, that is a big unknown uh, for the NAFTA talks because they have elections in July. And so running ahead now is Lopez Obrador, who is a wild card. He's to the sort of extreme left in, in, in Mexico. And we're not clear how he would move ahead on NAFTA if we don't get the talks done. So really, uh, there's a date here where if we can't get these NAFTA talks done before uh, the elections in uh, in Mexico then that's a whole new ballgame. Thank you very much for being with us. Bill Rhodes, he is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. This is Bloomberg. Humana and Walmart, a marriage made in heaven? Well, perhaps. Here to join us and discuss this potential tie-up is Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist, and Tara LaChapelle, deals columnist, both of Bloomberg Gadfly. They both write fabulous columns. Read them. Uh, Tara, I want to start with you because you cover the M&A market on a more broad level. And I'm wondering, how concentrated has the healthcare-specific deals been? I mean, in other words, how massive has the way 
wave been this year? I want to set this up that way. Yeah, I mean, it started with CVS Aetna back in December, a really surprising deal. Um, it, it makes sense for strategic reasons, which we've been writing, but the finances are what's so jarring. And now that we're seeing other companies explore similar, uh, really large mega deals, a lot of debt involved, um, it, it's a little bit of cause for concern. You know, you have to question where what is behind this M&A wave and in the end, is it going to be better for shareholders and for these companies? So, Max, that raises the question of Humana and Walmart. And, you know, I oppose that to you. Do you think that this deal makes sense? Um, I, I think it does in, in, in a number of different ways. Uh, for one, Humana is pretty heavily concentrated on the, the Medicare market. That's a, a good overlap with uh, kind of Walmart's core customer base. Uh, they already have a partnership for Medicare prescription drug programs, so they know how to work to each other uh, with each other. And, um, you know, Walmart, anything they can do to kind of drive store traffic, um, whether it's by driving human enrollees to clinics or making sure they use their pharmacies, building their pharmacy business, uh, that, that's all to their benefit. Um, the question is, you know, whether they can actually drive the full amount of that benefit considering their kind of relative lack of experience in healthcare and in managing enrollee health. Um, and also the fact that, you know, as Tara mentioned, this is, you know, the third in a, in a line of deals. And these deals themselves come come on the heels of, you know, United Health having spent almost a decade kind of following this integrated insurer provider uh, model. So everyone's sort of playing catch up. And it's a question if all, they'll all be able to, to do it well and do it profitably at the same time. Max, am I just uh, sort of getting stuck on this idea that this is not a healthcare company? Humana is an insurance company. They are a healthcare insurer, but they do not provide any of the healthcare that we're talking about. Is that accurate? Um, they they actually ha- have they? some role. I mean, pretty much any insurer is is actively managing the care. No, no, I understand the, that, but, but I mean, they do not employ the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists. They're, or do they're they? looking to employ more. Humana has a, a separate deal with, uh, I believe, like a home hospice. Correct. Place. And and they've been in doing some investments on that. They have a heavy investment in care coordinators too, which kind of actively work to to keep people out of the emergency rooms and things like that. So this would be an opportunity for them to. You know, should this combination go forward to play more of a role in in care provision, uh, while Walmart's clinic presence being kind of the potential avenue, uh, you'd imagine they'd invest heavily in that if they they go through with steel. Tara, I'm struck by the fact that Walmart shares are down more than three percent, while Humana shares are up more than five percent. The market seems to be judging this as a boon for Humana and a possible bust for Walmart. Why? True. Although we've gotten used to seeing acquirer shares rise on M&A news, but traditionally the acquirer is supposed to fall. That's the way you know merger are, but typically work. So it's not super unusual to see Walmart down, but it is a, a sign that perhaps um, shareholders are a little bit worried about this deal. Again, it's not a super obvious fit, but it does make sense, as Max explained, for Walmart to do this. And you can see, you know, with the Amazon threat there, why they would go this route. But also, I would look at, if you consider the CVS Aetna deal and the Cigna Express Scripts deal in comparison to this possible transaction between Walmart and Humana, this one would be a lot more financially healthy. Uh, Walmart's starting with a pristine balance sheet. They've got you know, investment grading, that's the tops for the industry. They really have a lot of room to do something this size if they wanted to. It wouldn't be as disconcerting as CVS Aetna, where, you know, they're taking on a whole lot of leverage for something that's a little bit outside their wheelhouse. In this case, I mean, the deal would be accretive, and it really wouldn't do a whole lot to leverage. But why Humanimax? 
Um, well, Jimena, I, I think it's some combination of the, the customer overlap and fit, the prior relationship, and uh, just a size thing here. Um, you know, the, the only big insurer left standing uh, app, uh, other than Humana is, is Anthem, which is a, a much bigger mouthful. And they're much more focused on sort of the corporate market, which would be a little bit trickier for Walmart. Um, this one, you know, doesn't quite have that kind of potential conflict of interest. And also, um, it, it's just a more bite-sized way of getting into this market. And um, I think the thing that doesn't get mentioned quite as much is it, it's also an opportunity for Walmart to more aggressively or more in in a more in-house manner uh, manage the healthcare of their 1.5 million U.S. employees. They already do um, some of some care purchasing on their own. They're self-insured, but uh, this would be a way to, to take that entirely in-house. Tara LaChapelle, can you do 20 seconds on CBS Viacom? Just give us an update. Sure. It sounds like those talks are progressing and uh, as expected. I think that that deal, we'll see that sometime next quarter. Um, it makes a whole lot of sense, CBS and Viacom, to TV network operators that need more scale in this environment as all the uh, distributors have been merging. So it makes sense for these guys to get back together potentially. Thank you both very much. Uh, Tara LaChapelle, our deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, and you can follow Tara on Twitter at Tara LaCH. So that's T A R A L A C H. And uh, Max Neeson, our Gadfly columnist for all things uh, biotech, pharmaceutical, and healthcare. And you can follow him on Twitter at Max Neeson, N I S E N. I've already had three cups of coffee today, and I'm a little bit concerned about what that might mean for my body, not only uh, just with respect to being too hyped up, but perhaps uh, what it has to do with cancer. Here to discuss this issue, Jennifer Bertashis. She uh, covers the U.S. retail sector for uh, with staples and restaurants being her focus for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for being with us. There was a court ruling in California basically forcing Starbucks and some other to reveal some connection between cancer and coffee. Please explain. Good morning, and thanks Thanks for having me. So, so yes, there was a lawsuit that was filed uh, by a nonprofit organization, the Council for Education and Research on Toxins, um, and a judgment was, was given uh, earlier this week um, from the Superior Court judge who ruled that um, these, these coffee companies and other retailers that sell coffee in their stores um, may have to show or disclose that there's a potential cancer risk um, from one of the chemicals that is a byproduct of the roasting process in coffee, um, and that, that's the, the chemical acrylamide. So is this something that would actually have uh, an effect on Starbucks's roasting process? I mean, could they switch to something else? Um, actually, it's a it's a chemical process that happens when beans are roasted. Um, it's not unique to coffee. It also happens um, at, with other foods when they're cooked at a high temperature. So French fries would be another example, or potato chips. Um, so it's a fairly common byproduct of that process. Um, within the roasting process, um, there are variations. So darker roasts actually have less of this chemical in them than the lighter roasts. Um, and certain bean types have less than others. So the Arabica beans actually have slightly less than other varieties. So both of those things are actually probably a little bit better for Starbucks within the context of the situation. Jen, where, where, what are the studies that, that have looked into this and sort of how have they, have they actually uh, drawn links between, uh, you know, cancer incidences and coffee drinkage? Yeah, so... so 
it, you know, there's a there's a lot of, of of interest in the link between coffee and cancer, and you you find results of studies looking at, at in both directions. Um, but at at the moment, the most clarity that we have is that you know in the dietary guidelines for Americans from the USDA, it, they still say that up to five cups of coffee a day is okay for Americans. Um, the World Health Organization does not list coffee on its carcinogen list, um, and so the the the, the concerns are have been really cited coming from studies where the levels were higher in animal tests that were done, um, and that was with acrylamide that was in wa- in their drinking water. So it wasn't directly coming out of coffee, and it was slightly different. Um, and of course, there on the other side of the equation, you have a lot of studies that say that there are actually benefits um, um, of drinking coffee um, because it contains antioxidants, which protect the body against free radicals, and that it can actually help um, prevent um, some types of cancer. Um, but there's no clear answer from either side um, on this topic at this point in time. And I would imagine what that because of California's uh, presence in the coffee market in terms of consumers, it would make it difficult to just tailor packaging with warning labels that are just specific to stores in California. That's correct. Um, and so, if you if you look, Starbucks is the largest defendant in this case. Um, about 19% of their total store base is located in California, um, and. Right now, um, of, there are 90 different companies, I think, part of this suit. Um, a handful of them have actually already settled. One of the potential outcomes is that they don't need to actually put the, the label on the coffee cup itself, um, you know, like, like you would see on a cigarette package with the warning label, um, but rather post you know, warning in stores on a poster or on signage. Um, and if that's the case, then it becomes a little bit more manageable for these companies than having to have a separate supply of cups that are branded, you know, or, you know, or have this late warning label on them just in California. I imagine that it could potentially dent sales, though. People don't really want to see a skull and crossbones on their coffee. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's in all honesty, you know, because because um, anytime there's something between coffee and cancer in the news, I think most people have some kind of of sense that you know that it it may not be the best for you. It's probably not the worst thing that most people put in their bodies. Um, so my guess is that it, it it is unlikely to have a major impact on that first morning cup of coffee, um, but where you could see it show up. Is in other parts of the day, um, people may decide to forego a second cup in the afternoon, or, or you know, or replace that with something else. Um, and, and more of a greater concern is that you know, one of the things with this with this lawsuit, they're they're actually asking for fines as much as twenty five hundred dollars for each person who's been exposed to the chemical since two thousand and two in California. Um, and if that actually happens, then you could be talking about you know a potential of hundreds of millions in in fines that these companies may have to pay. Well, the shares of Starbucks, they are lower right now by a little bit more than 2%. Our thanks to Jennifer Bartashas, our senior analyst for U.S. retail staples and restaurants for all things related to Bloomberg Intelligence. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.